Good afternoon and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for today, Wednesday, November the 10th, 2021. My name is Tom Hollingsworth. I am your host for this exciting look at the week's roundup of news. And I am joined once again by my wonderful co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. It's good to be back after Cloud Field Day last week. Yes, it was a busy week, uh, and it was not only a busy week for you at Cloud Field Day, but it was also a busy week for the rest of the folks here in the news. Um, we've got a lot of great stories that we're going to be covering, so without a, uh, any further hesitation, let's go ahead and jump right into the news of the week. Um, we're starting with a really curious acquisition. VIA announced this week that they are offloading parts of their x86 subsidiary, Centaur, to Intel for around $125 million. Now, normally when this kind of news breaks, you'd be hearing about how Intel is gonna capitalize on this new technology that's focused on deep learning, or how they're gonna take some of that innovation that's happened in the x86 space and integrate it into their main product lines. You'd think that, right? Except Intel has been pretty quiet on the announcement. And when you dig into the agreement, it turns out that it seems to only involve Intel being allowed to recruit personnel from VIA to be hired by Intel. Hmm. And Antec reached out for comment. Intel only confirmed that the deal was taking place and VIA didn't say anything at all. Uh, Steven, I, I'm not normally one to criticize Intel's business decisions, but what exactly did they buy here? I got me, honestly, um, I don't get it. Um, well, first of all, first of all, here's the thing. Raise your hand if you knew that VIA slash Centaur still made x86 CPUs. Um, I had forgotten them. It turns out there's three companies that make x86 CPUs. There's Intel, there's AMD, who you know people have heard of and uh, we'll be talking about later. And then there's, yeah, VIA through their Centaur subsidiary. I mean, Centaur was one of those companies that was making CPUs like 20 years ago. I mean, this is, um, I, I, I don't know. And, and then you look into this deal and you're like, what are they buying here? So according to Anantech, they're not buying the subsidiary. They're not buying like the patents or the rights or whatever. Like VIA might still keep this thing open, but the website is blanked out and Intel is apparently gonna hire a gay, I guess all the employees, but, but that's not where this 120 million, I don't know what this is. Um, I mean, I guess all we can say is that Intel is uh, doesn't want there to be three companies making x86 CPUs, and so now there's going to be two. Um, that's all I can say is 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 I'm going to do that emoji, and and that's the story. Um, maybe if we find any any, uh, we'll, we'll maybe we'll revisit it next week or the week after or next year when we find out any kind of details. Um, so maybe we've got a little more insight into the next story, Tom. Uh, the FAA isn't just making you shut down your phones for takeoff. According to reports from the Wall Street Journal, they've successfully convinced AT&T and Verizon to delay the implementation of new 5G spectrum frequencies due to potential impacts on airplanes and equipment and stuff. The C-band, which represents the frequency just above CBRS that we've been talking about for years for satellite TV, was scheduled to take place on December 5th. The FBAA said that if the rollout hadn't been paused, that the organization would have had to direct pilots to limit the use of some automated cockpit, cockpit systems, you know, minor stuff like ILS that could have been uh, disrupted by the use of the spectrum. The FCC also uh, pushed back against uh, the FAA's concerns, but it appears that there's more research to be done before there's more 5G bandwidth. 
So Tom, uh, is this gonna be a problem for mobile phone providers? It could be, and part of the reason why is because right now, 5G is not really good. I mean, remember when Apple tried to trick us into putting like that 3G plus thing on our phone before they could, they had a phone that could do LTE or which HSDPA or whatever it was. That's kind of where 5G is right now. We have a little bit more spectrum and we've done some of the improvements on the back end. But realistically speaking, is your phone really that much faster than it used to be? No, it's not. And in the article that we're going to put in the show notes, there's actually, if you scroll all the way to the bottom, uh, there's a link to a an article in PC Magazine, and and not to be a sensationalist or anything, but it goes, you know, C-band is what could save 5G in the U.S. I mean, not not underselling it at all. But essentially what they're saying is that there's a big contiguous group of um, transmission bandwidth, and it's basically from like 3.7 gigahertz up to about 4 gigahertz that has enough area in it to help with like densely populated areas because that's actually one of the problems with 5g right now is when you put it in a densely populated area it doesn't carry nearly as well and you know these cell towers were not built to you know be dense uh densely packed areas with with more devices connecting per tower so anyway the long story short is they were really wanting to get this thing opened up because kind of like you know how a lot of the companies have been selling this ultra wideband idea or millimeter wave and how it's super, super fast. And then there's a little asterisk and it's like, but only if you're really close to the tower. This was gonna get rid of that problem and also not require specialized hardware. And then the FAA steps in. You remember the FAA, they're your friends that tell you that if you don't turn your phone off as soon as the door closes, that the plane will crash even though it's already on the ground. And then it doesn't. Now, I will admit there is a high likelihood that there is some system in the cockpit that might be running in this bandwidth. I also remember how important it was for me to cease all radio communications from my seat halfway back in the airplane in the off chance that the pilot's flight manuals might be reprinted in French or something. I mean, let's face it, when the FAA tells you something, they don't worry about the minor little problems because I'm sure that if all of the systems that they could have picked out to tell you that this particular band of 5G could have impacted, they specifically picked the instrument landing system for maximum impact, pun only mildly intended. Um, because, you know, if you want to get the, the, the public to rally against something, just tell them that the next time they're flying, their plane could crash in inclement weather because the instruments aren't working. Now, the other curious thing is, is that the FCC had already pushed back against them and said, come on, guys, really? We've set up very specific rules that say how you're supposed to use this, and you have to be very careful about the way that the bands are being uh, utilized and, and where they're pointing. And the FAA is like, nope, nope, we're not going to do it until you tell us 100% that it's not going to impact the planes. They haven't told the airlines that they have to shield these systems or change the way they operate. It's just, you know, we, we can't do this. And before you think that the FCC is, is not really that stringent, all you got to do is go back and look at the 6 gigahertz, the Wi-Fi 6E rollout. Um, Chuck Lukaszewski gave a great talk at uh, WLPC a couple of years ago talking about how much effort they had to go through in order to be able to get to prove that this wasn't going to interfere with existing satellite downlink stuff. Like they had to have cars out driving around measuring the bleed over between APs and these downlink stations. So like the FCC put them through the ringer. And if the FCC was telling the FAA, come on, guys, you're being a little bit crazy here. I think the FAA is being a little bit crazy. So I'm sure what's gonna happen is we're gonna have a whole bunch more studies 
it will get released sometime later next year the faa is still not gonna be okay with it and no planes are gonna fall out of the sky because of it so here you go all right, Stephen, um, I want to bring up a story actually that happened last week at Cloud Field Day um, on that, which you may have heard of previously because they were known as Storage OS, uh, talked about their new SaaS platform. Now, SaaS, OK, big deal. You made a SaaS platform, uh, but except it's not a an orchestration layer for containers. It is not something that's aimed at hosting data or databases in a specific cloud. Instead, it is a platform help designed to onboard customers and help them manage resources across multiple clouds. Stephen, you were in the room when Ondat released this new product and started discussing it with the delegates. What are your thoughts on what it does and what its capabilities are for uh, professionals out there? Yeah, it was great that uh, Ondat uh, decided to uh, coordinate this announcement with Cloud Field Day. And uh, if you want to learn more about it, we did put up a special video that we're going to link in the show notes where you can see uh, all about the SaaS management portal. So first of all, let me just clear up. As Tom mentioned, uh, if you're wondering, wait, who's Ondat? Ondat is the new name for Storage OS. So the problem is that uh, Storage OS, well, Storage OS makes a great uh, alternative storage platform for uh, cloud and Kubernetes and container storage. Um, the challenge was uh, that the product was a lot more than storage and Storage OS kind of didn't do the justice to the, to the product. So they switched the name up to Ondat, they rebranded, and uh, they're in the process of, of, of sort of sharing that love with everybody. Uh, this product is very, very highly recommended by users and analysts. Uh, it's, a, it's a solid product for Kubernetes storage. Uh, one of the things, though, that was missing was uh, self-service, and that's really what they're announcing here, is uh, that they've got now a SaaS management portal. And I guess you're saying, yeah, so what, SaaS management, right? Well, the, the truth is that this thing is a lot more than just a SaaS management portal. It's really just, it's a real whole SaaS offering. So essentially, um, you can sign up uh, on your own. Uh, self-service, uh, you can, um, you know, get a trial, uh, you can have uh, consumption-based billing with centralized uh, licensing and billing, and finally, uh, you have an, a centralized UI to manage the whole experience. So essentially, if you're in the Kubernetes space and you need persistent storage, it's really container interest in integrated, uh, you want an alternative to maybe what's being offered by some of the big storage-focused companies, well, now you've got an alternative and it's on that. And I'm really uh, pleased to see what they've announced here. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where they take this thing uh, in the future. Tom, uh, talking about other uh, companies that folks are familiar with, uh, Cisco. Um, when is uh, 10 of 10 not a good thing? Uh, well, when that's the new critical vulnerability in your optical switches. Cisco got hit with a new exploit this week that involves what they're calling an unintentional debugging credential. Uh, this backdoor allows root-level privileges on the switches. Uh, Cisco claims that this bug is only exploitable if you have Telnet enabled on the switch, and that's disabled by default, so everyone's safe, right? Because no one would ever use Telnet, right? Uh, there's no word on, yet on when a patch uh, removes the backdoor will be released. Uh, Tom, is this something that could be a black eye with Cisco? And more importantly, how many network administrators have Telnet enabled? Because I don't. Well, I would say that um, I, I saw a video yesterday. The number is not zero, even though it should be, and that's a problem. Here's the deal. One, unintentional debugging credential. Yeah, let's just call it Joshua, and we all know how that worked out for Matthew Broderick. 
it's a back door. You created a back door into the system so that you could get in and do stuff with it. Whether or not you left it in there on purpose or on accident, the result is still the same. It's there. And it means that people can gain access to the switch. Now, I get that the ultimate goal is, you know, by making it only dependable, dependable on Telnet or something like that, then essentially what you've done is you've set up a condition that says we would only ever do this in the lab to work on things because I'm sure Cisco you only uses Telnet in the lab because it's easier to do that than manage SSH. And then if Telnet's not enabled and nobody knows about the debugging credential, then we don't have to worry about anybody getting into the switch, right? Yeah, I guarantee you there's at least one of these switches out there that is it has Telnet enabled because someone's lazy. Now, if this is just a switch like the one running under my desk, I wouldn't care because that switch has no internet access. These are optical switches that run in service provider networks. You think they have internet access? You think the internet runs through them? Yeah, they do. I'm not saying you can get to the management ports on them, but I'm saying it's a lot less secure than it would be if you didn't create the debugging credential. So I'm not going to decry your development process, but can you at least add a checkbox to the thing that says remove unintentional credentials? Um, because this is not the first time that this has happened. This is not the first time this has happened to Cisco. Um, people are going to start asking lots of questions if this comes up again, and I don't think you're going to want to answer them. So just, you know, assume now that people are going to find these vulnerabilities and assume that they're going to be really high on the scale because they kind of are a big deal. So yeah, just don't do this again, guys. Um, Steven, I have one more thing from Cloud Field Day that I wanted to talk to you about, and it's about Memverge because they announced their big memory cloud offering, which is designed to help organizations that really want to use multi-cloud properly, but they haven't been able to rewrite their applications to be stateless. Now, Big Memory Cloud captures application data to allow stateful applications to be restarted from a point in time should they fail or they need to be migrated to a different cloud or something. Now, what kind of advantage does this offer organizations because they are maybe stuck in the middle of their cloud migration because they've got an app that they can't really do anything about because Lord knows they can't rewrite it? Is this a huge advantage to get them to move? Well, yeah, let me start uh, just by 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 kind of explaining again, what's Memverge? So this is a startup uh, that is doing something uh, kind of amazing and, and kind of akin to what VMware did. So remember what VMware did was they abstracted basically the, the, the compute from the actual hardware. So you're, you're, you can run kind of anything on anything. Uh, Memverge is doing a similar thing for memory. And uh, that's kind of weird, but it's kind of cool. So a, a while back, they announced that they have these transparent memory services. So you can actually have virtual memory. I know we've had virtual memory forever, uh, tiered memory, and you can have memory on things like Optane. So you can have like basically all the all the memory you need, uh, even if this uh, more than the system supports. And in the future, that's going to extend to CXL and things like that. Uh, they also offer data services for that memory. So that's where it starts getting interesting. So, so yeah, okay, that's great. I've got all the memory I need. What if I could snapshot my memory? What if I could reload that snapshot and basically bring the entire running host back to a previous state? What if I could move the entire running machine, including all of its memory, to another machine and, and have it just transparently be running there too? This is pretty cool. 
But what they're announcing now is basically doing this in the cloud. And that's amazing. So they have this thing called an app capsule. You can think of it as like a container, except whereas a container is just the software environment, this is literally the running machine, all the memory and everything. And it's not like old school where you kind of have two things running at once. No, no, no. This is, hey, let me snapshot this and start it up over there. Or how about this? Let me snapshot this and start up 50 instances of it running right here in different directions. Think about all the things you can do with this, whether you're doing like machine learning, whether you're doing like a Monte Carlo simulation, or whether you just need high availability or you just need to move from one cloud to another. So that's what they're announcing here. I love this concept. Uh, this is light years beyond what anyone else is doing. And it, if, if this sounds cool to you, go look it up. Uh, we're going to link to the Tech Field Day presentation. We're actually going to link to uh, the whole presentation in the notes so that you can watch all the way through. It, it's worth your time, seriously. This is some cool, cool stuff. That's great to hear. And uh, we always love being able to recap some of the great things that we hear from Tech Field Day here on the rundown, um, specifically because, you know, they're pretty newsworthy and uh, getting you a chance to see those presentations and action and all the technical details is is just one of the big benefits. Um, I wanted to have a closer look at a couple of big stories that came out this week, Stephen, and they all revolve around chips and some of our favorite companies and some big announcements. Um, because NVIDIA had their GTC show this week, and they talked about some of the really new advances that they've been working on. Now, topping the list was this new focus on something called the metaverse, which is a term used by companies to talk about VR and make it sound kind of awesome again, I, I guess. Um, NVIDIA is now going to call the term Omniverse because Meta has some other new meaning that we don't really care about. Uh, but NVIDIA did say they were releasing some products to build more accurate digital twins, which is something that I'm kind of interested in, as well as some fully featured interactive AIs for the Omniverse. Now, just before you think that this is all about consumer VR stuff, no, the enterprise side of the house did get some exciting news as a new thing called Project Triton looks to improve inference AI for the enterprise and something called Nemo Megatron, which sounds like the weirdest transformer ever, is trying to assist with natural language training models. And last but not least, we have something about security because they did build a zero trust uh, security platform based on their Bluefield DPUs, uh, DACA, which is their uh, programming architecture and the Morpheus cybersecurity AI framework. Steven, of all the announcements that you saw from NVIDIA GCC, what were the ones that stood out to you the most? Yeah, let, let me start by saying way to go on the names, people. You are you you got all the bases covered. We've got normal, we've got incomprehensible, and we've got insane all in one event. So chef's kiss for you. Um, let's focus uh, really on the Omniverse. So Here's the thing. Uh, it's easy to get a little bit what about these conferences because, of course, you know, do you know what else NVIDIA announced? Everything's bigger and faster. There, we're good. Um, but let's focus on this Omniverse concept and specifically the Omniverse replicator. Why is this relevant? This is relevant because it's actually, it actually is relevant. I hate to say it, it's actually really cool. I hate, I, I don't want it to be cool, but it is. Essentially, what we're doing here is it's all about this kind of digital twin concept. So imagine, um, well, I mean, it's easy to think about, you know, because we've seen this uh, for, for years and years, uh, you're a car designer and you need to do wind tunnel testing. 
in the old days, you would literally get a big bunch of clay and like carve the car shape and put it in a big wind tunnel and then like blow wind at it with like smoke and streamers and stuff. Well, we don't do that anymore. Nowadays, when we're doing wind tunnel testing, we create a digital simulation of the car in a simulated digital wind tunnel. And then we are able to use that to, you know, do the thing, right? And eventually, yeah, we put the real one in the wind tunnel. But, but the important thing is we've created a digital twin of that car. Same thing happens with basically everything else in the modern world, uh, from architecture to traffic planning to environment simulations and so on. Um, the omniverse replicator concept is essentially doing this for everything. Uh, right now, it's actually really hard to build digital twins. It's really hard to create the virtual version of the physical in order to do the work on it. But uh, NVIDIA, basically everything they announced it this year is built around that, is built around making better digital twins. And this is, like I said, <laughs> actually really cool and useful. So you can essentially have AI-powered tools that use NVIDIA accelerators, surprise, uh, and that they basically are going to be replicating physical devices in virtual space in order to do all sorts of different testing and development processes. And that's frankly going to be a huge, huge win for them. I mean, just like I said, the simulation testing for cars is one of the bigger IT expenses for um, automobile manufacturers. I personally worked in uh, oil and gas exploration many years ago. And one of our biggest expenses was um, all the simulations of geophysics to try to find where oil and gas might be under the ground. Um, things like that are actually a bigger nut of the IT uh, tree that they're trying to crack open. And that's what this stuff is all about. So whether it's Omniverse, whether it's their you know avatar platform or you know the modulus framework or all these other things, Nemo, Megatron, all of this stuff is essentially about NVIDIA finding new markets for all the NVIDIA processing power out there. And it's kind of great. So uh, color me impressed by the technology, um, color me impressed by the advancement, uh, color me less impressed by the code names, but uh, there you go. Also, it's really great to see them in really integrating the uh, Mellanox acquisition, the Bluefield accelerators and DPUs to this, because of course it's, a, it's about a lot more than just GPU power. It's about uh, intelligent networking, high-performance networking, and we're seeing that stretching across from high-performance computing uh, to, as Tom mentioned, security. So really all of this makes a lot of sense and it all works great and it's all really kind of on the path that we expected NVIDIA to go and um, they're executing. So nice job. I really love the, the cybersecurity trust framework that they're building up because they're using Bluefield DPUs and DPUs are the IO controllers for the, the system now, at least that's how NVIDIA is envisioning them. They're using DACA, which is CUDA, but for DPUs, and they're using it for machine isolation because that's the big thing that we've talked about at Security Field Day and Networking Field Day for a number of years is how do you build a zero trust architecture? Well, you've got to do all this software chicanery and make sure that everybody knows the identity of whatever. Man, if only there was a way for me to uniquely identify if I could trust an endpoint, if there was some piece of, I don't know, hardware in there that I trusted, hmm, where would I find one of those? 
yeah you know where you find one of those you can find it in a dpu and if you are only writing daca code to be able to interface between those dpus I mean, if you're running virtual machines on top of it, you're going to have to be able to isolate the VM somehow. But if you can isolate the I.O. down to the, the unit, I mean, you've already solved a huge problem. And that's not a problem that you can solve with a regular CPU. And that's the advantage that I think you're going to see NVIDIA really going forward with. Um, there are also a whole bunch of other announcements around things like InfiniBand updates and uh, quantum computing. But I don't have time to get into the quantum computing stuff, or do I? with my help from my friend, Dr. Schrodinger. We'll cover that another time. Uh, I do want to, however, talk about some other announcements that came out because coincidentally enough, even though it was NVIDIA GCT, GTC this week, AMD had some announcements too. Hmm. Theirs were in a virtual event that happened on the 8th, on Monday. Um, they were talking about some of the additions to their new Epic lineup of chips. Um, the Genoa chip is scheduled to be released late next year in 2022, and it's their server CPU that focuses on high per core performance. The newest addition is Bergamo, and if you're Italian, I'm sorry I'm butchering all of these names. Uh, it's a cloud native CPU that's focused on thread performance. But don't think that that's just any slouch anyway, because Genoa is going to pack 96 cores per die. Bergamo is going to have 128 cores per die. That's a lot of cores. AMD also showed off some, a new addition to their workstation GPU accelerator lineup that they're calling the MI200, which is the successor for the MI100. And that's a purpose-built offload card that is designed to take CPU tasks and hand them off to the GPU. And if you were thinking that a GPU is only designed to run Crisis at full resolution, uh, that split happened a long time ago, and you now have workstation class GPUs that are designed to handle offload tasks, and you have uh, gaming GPUs, which are designed to do textures and stuff like that. Um, I'm beginning to wonder how NVIDIA and AMD and these other markets are going to attack this GPU problem, because as we saw with the launch of Apple's recent um, new MacBook lineup, including the M1 Max and the M1 Pro, they are really heavily increasing the number of GPU cores in their custom-built chips to do these kinds of offloads. And the results from all of the things that I've been seeing say that the graphics, GP, the GPU cores are having a massive impact on the performance. And that's on a workstation that's designed for consumers. Steven, is increasing the number of GPUs in these add-in cards going to be that much of an increase for people who are doing tasks that are easily offloaded to GPUs? Well, this is some big news. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to unpack here, Tom. So thank you for that uh, overview. But uh, yeah, there's a ton of stuff to unpack here. But uh, the bottom line is that AMD announced a, a graphics processor that's faster than anything NVIDIA has. Um, let's just drop the mic on that. So uh, how did they achieve this is kind of the interesting aspect, too, in that how they achieved it was by basically taking two A100 dies and plopping them down onto the same chip. So essentially you've got uh, multi-die chips or multi-die processors now for the GPU side as well as on the CPU side, which is honestly how AMD has achieved a lot of this, the rest of this stuff too. Uh, that's how the Zen uh, chips uh, that everybody's all excited about, Ryzen and Epic, uh, that's how they work too. So you've got multiple chip dies on the same CPU container. Um, and, that, and, that, and that's what they're doing here. Um, the MI200 sounds amazing. Um, 
the Genoa, though, I mean, I, for me, I, I'm actually more excited about where they're going with these server CPUs. So as you said, Genoa, uh, 96 Zen 4 cores, so those next generation cores, it's going to be built on the 5 nanometer TSMC process, which right there, they say that they're going to get twice the efficiency and 25% more performance. Um, and so Intel actually got out ahead of AMD here in supporting uh, DDR5 and PCI Express 5. And uh, guess what? Here's AMD uh, with both of those things in their next generation uh, Zen core. So uh, we're going to see that next year. Um, again, 96 cores uh, is going to be awesome. But beyond that, as you said, Bergamo or Bergamo or um, whatever, we're, that, that guy's coming uh, in 2023. 128 Zen 4C cores. The C stands for cloud optimized. Um, this product is going to be providing more cores and more thread density. So this is not a next generation part. This is a special part for the cloud. And as luck would have it, a little company named Meta just announced that they are going to be using these chips in their forthcoming cloud systems because they are really prone to using uh, single core uh, or single socket uh, servers in their data centers. So you could also think of Bergamo and Genoa as uh, meta processors, because essentially that's what these things are for. They're to make Facebook super happy. Um, the other thing that's cool though, is they've got this thing called Milan X. So this guy has three times as much cache. In fact, we might be seeing a gigabyte of L3 cache uh, in the future here. Uh, the way they're doing this is the same way that they're attacking the instinct and the Zen cores and so on. You know, you make uh, separate dies and then you marry them together on the same chip, which is just cool as cool can be. And also the direction that most companies are heading, including, as you mentioned, like Apple and so on. And Intel themselves are, are heading in this direction as well. Uh, these big cache servers provide up to 50% more performance in workloads that have large data sets and need a lot of L3 cache. Um, that's also pretty cool. What we're seeing here is really AMD executing on, on all counts. Uh, the company is just killing it in the uh, desktop space. They are absolutely crushing Intel in um, the data center and cloud space um, in terms of new wins and net wins. That being said, Intel, again, as we talked about last time I was on the, the rundown, Intel is still way ahead in both of these markets because, frankly, they're Intel. And so AMD has a lot of market share to make up. But uh, frankly, that also gives them a big opportunity to make up some of this market share. And these products look great. Uh, they're also about to acquire Xilinx, which is another thing AMD said that they're actually going to go through with that acquisition by the end of the year. So we'll see if it really happens. But um, you know, AMD says that they're going to be doing that, so they'll offer some uh, FPGAs as well. Uh, I imagine AMD is going to continue to use this giant pile of cash that they've amassed to make more acquisitions and better compete with Intel. And um, that, that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at a company that's really uh, firing on all cylinders, competing with Intel everywhere, competing with NVIDIA everywhere, and, and really doing a great job of it. So I'm super impressed by these new parts. Again, these are not like some kind of magic, you know, next generation thing. In most cases, they're small but important tweaks that make everything run better. Um, you know, Tom, what do you got? I would honestly say that at this point, I don't think AMD really sees Intel as their primary competitor. 
they see Intel as the the boogeyman out there that they need to defeat. I think they see NVIDIA as their primary competitor. And when you look at the Xilinx acquisition, when you look at the way that they are constructing these cores, because I don't think Intel has a 128 core chip that they're wanting to sell, but that translates really well into the cloud when you're when you're carving those cores up. They're not fighting Intel on Intel's battlefield. They are picking a new battlefield and they're innovating there. And when you look at the way that DPUs are taking off, when you look at the way that ARM processors are kind of climbing that hill pretty quickly because it's no longer about having one big CPU to do a whole bunch of stuff. It's about having purpose-built devices to do those things. I mean, I, I alluded to it in the opening, but the new MacBook is a nice MacBook and it doesn't have an Intel chip in it. And as more things get rewritten to take advantage of what ARM offers and what DPUs offer and things like that, you may not have to beat Intel because you may be playing in a world where Intel doesn't have any relevance. And that's a sad thing to say because I was there in the 90s when, you know, uh, you know, AMD and, and, and those companies were trying really hard and they weren't ready to get there and Intel just got that lead and then they got lazy and they thought they could win forever and then companies are coming in behind them and out innovating them I, I what the ultimate goal is for us as consumers and professionals is that we're getting the best results of competition we're getting more capable devices that draw less power and give us more flexibility it's just watching companies that should have made these transitions earlier finally wake up and realize that they need to make them and and honestly you know we've talked about it a number of times on the rundown i think pat gelsinger is the right person to lead intel through this more than any other person has been in the past i just hope that pat came on board fast enough to turn that ship before we start talking about intel the same way we talk about weighing computers and ibm yeah, let me just um, provide some counterpoint there. As I said, I mean, Intel is still way ahead in all of these markets, um, you know, for you know, laptop, desktop, server, cloud. Uh, also, we got to give them a little credit for what they did with Alder Lake. So everybody's saying, you know, wow, you know, Apple, M1, wow, you know, AMD, Zen. Um, Alder Lake is actually faster. And um, <laughs> That's a pretty cool thing to be able to say. So Intel does have the fastest uh, cores out there right now. And um, that's, you know, they, they were first to DDR5. They were first to PCIe5. As you said, yeah, they, they fell asleep at the wheel. But Pat Gelsinger has shaken that wheel and he has wakened the company up. This is going to be a fun, fun segment to watch for the next few years because basically you've got a hungry giant uh, and a whole bunch of hungry competitors. And as you said, you know, um, AMD, AMD is competing with all comers. They're, they're competing with Intel, but they're also competing with NVIDIA. NVIDIA is competing with Intel and AMD and more. Um, and, and they're all frenemies too. That's the other thing. So uh, Intel partners with NVIDIA. Intel, uh, AMD partners with NVIDIA. In fact, a lot of the new NVIDIA stuff uses Intel's or AMD's Epic cores. So uh, they're... There's just a lot of stuff happening here. There's a lot of exciting stuff happening here. And um, no one is way out in the lead so far technically that they are insurmountable. And everyone, I think, has their eyes on that ball and is going for it. So this is going to be a fun, fun place. And ultimately, the beneficiary is going to be all the people out there that need CPU and DPU and IPU and an APU and GPU and all these other PUs. 
uh, we, we, we all need that stuff. And, um, and we're all going to get a lot of it in the years to come because these companies have tons of resources and they are hungry. Ultimately, the real challenge here is going to be the chip shortage. And that's something that we've talked about in the past on the rundown, and we will be talking about again in the future. Speaking of the future, Stephen, there are a couple of events coming up over the next couple of weeks that are kind of exciting. So uh, what should be people what should people be looking ahead for? Well, as for me, I'm going to be focusing on two events here coming up in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, number one is uh, supercomputing, which is an event that I follow closely every single year. It's definitely worth your time to pay attention to what comes out of supercomputing, even if you're not attending or watching the live stream. That's November 14th through 19th. Again, this is an HPC show, but we see a lot of announcements from a lot of companies that are relevant to our space. Another show that's coming up uh, pretty quickly now is uh, the annual AWS reInvent show. So this is going to be a hybrid show. There's going to be people in person. There's going to be people remote. That's November 29th through the December 2nd. Uh, that show, of course, is one of the biggest ones now with, a with uh, AWS taking so much of the uh, enterprise space. Yes, exactly. And uh, I know that we're getting into the Thanksgiving timeframe so that there's the shows are probably going to be slowing down. But that's why we're giving you a week ahead look so you can kind of get ready for that. I mean, I know that the easiest thing to, to cure my tryptophan coma is to uh, hear about the latest excitement from Amazon. So you're definitely going to want to tune in for that. Uh, also, don't forget that we do have one more field day event coming up this year. Uh, that's Networking Field Day Service Provider, which will be taking place December 8th, 9th and 10th. Um, we will be giving you a little bit more detail about that as we get closer to the event, probably in next week's rundown. Uh, but I wanted to make sure you put that on your calendar. Head over to techfieldday.com and you can check out what's going on there. Um, Stephen, what's one thing that everybody should be uh, looking for you uh, this week? What are some of the cool things that you've been working on? Well, definitely check out the videos from Cloud Field Day. We saw a lot of great stuff in addition to Memverge and Ondat, as we mentioned in this rundown. Uh, just go to YouTube slash techfieldday. You'll find all the videos posted there. Uh, definitely look into some of the new companies like Yoda Scale and Prosimo, uh, along with uh, some of the old friends, you know, Juniper and Red Hat and uh, Veeam. So definitely check out some of those presentations from Cloud Field Day. And uh, I'm actually doing a little bit of coverage from the security field day presentations that we had a few weeks ago uh, that are being published on gestaltit.com right now. So you're definitely going to want to go over and check those out, including uh, coverage of Swimlane and Cisco and some more exciting stuff coming up. Um, but that will just about do us for this episode of The Rundown. It's National Vanilla Cupcake Day, so why don't you go ahead and uh, after you've had lunch, have yourself a nice vanilla cupcake. Um, no no toppings, though, because we, we want to keep it plain. We want to enjoy the, the flavor of the vanilla beans. Um, but we'll be back next Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time with more great news uh, that happened in the IT community this week. Uh, if you want to check that out, please make sure you are ready to go on our website at uh, gestaltit.com. You can also head over to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash video, where we just posted a new unboxing video of the exciting wireless uh, communication setup that we have in the uh, Tech Field Day Gestalt IT offices. So make sure you check that out. Steven, opening boxes is always an exciting time. Uh, you can also listen to the rundown as a podcast. If you are uh, commuting to work or just out for a run, um, you can uh, catch up on the weekly news by uh, subscribing in your favorite podcast application of choice. Um, but otherwise, we will be back. And uh, I want to say a special happy Veterans Day to everyone out there. Uh, Veterans Day is tomorrow. And uh, I know that a lot of folks, uh, it's a, an important holiday for them. So thank you all very much for everything that you've done and everything that you've given. And uh, we look forward to uh, offering more great news next week. Thank you very much. Have a great day. And we will see you next Wednesday. <laughs>